Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Welcome back and I would like to introduce you to our guest. Anthony Turton is a scientist specializing in water resource management as a strategic issue with a robust publication record. He has written books, chapters, reports, and for scientific publications. He's also a professional speaker and consultant, a writer, and an amateur poet. But can I recommend you go to his website, anthonyturton.com, Turton with a U, because it's a, it's it's absolutely fascinating to read. But I've asked Anthony to come onto the show to talk about water. Is it the most inadequately dealt with political crisis of our day? Um, Anthony, are you with us? Yes, good morning to you and the listeners. Great. Thanks, Anthony. Um, I... I've done a little bit on this program about specific water, water issues in specific municipalities and areas dealing with drought and, and mismanagement. But what I really wanted to canvas was, one is the question is, is water the most under-considered issue or political issue of the day? And if so, what are, and irrespective, what are the issues that face South Africa with regard to water in the broader context? Yes, uh, it's, uh, water is a seductively simple topic, but it's also extremely complex once you start getting under the surface. Because water is the enabler of all life, uh, you know, so the planet Earth is the only uh, planet floating in the lifeless infinity of outer space that we know of that's got biological life on it, and that's because we have water. That's why when NASA goes to Mars, they look for water to see if we can find any other other life forms. So, so because of that, water is is kind of almost in everything that we touch and feel and see, but we never really consider it or think of it as water. The water we think of generally is the water that comes from our tap, the water that we bath with, uh, the water we maybe drink, and uh, you know possibly the water that we swim in or and water our garden with. So basically, uh, we only see a very very small portion of the water, but water ultimately is an economic enabler. Because where you have water in, in reliable supply of reliable quality and quantity, then you have economic prosperity. And where you don't, unfortunately, you have economic demise. So the theme that I would like to bring about uh, uh, or, or discuss at least is this whole idea of water as an economic enabler. Um. And this is this is the the issue we saw. I certainly saw in in some of the anecdotes I looked at previously, and that is that in drought in some of the drought in, uh, affected municipalities, particularly in the Eastern Cape, um, the failure the, the the failure for of the government to bring water to the people of those areas, um, which has really had to be done by organisations like Gift of the Givers, is completely, completely emasculating any attempt at, uh, at, at economic, even sustainability, let alone growth. And people are going beyond being able, having jobs or being able to keep themselves together. They are literally going hungry and, and some are actually approaching the point of dying of thirst. 
Yes, um, you, you open a very interesting topic now about the role of government, and uh, I always find it quite, uh, quite almost amusing if it wasn't such a serious issue that government is surprised when a drought hits us. Mm. The very, very first book that was ever written on water in South Africa was written in 1866 by a gentleman called J.C. Brown. And he was uh, roaming around the Cape Colony at that time because the South Africa didn't yet exist as a union. So he mm. was riding around the Cape Colony on his horseback and, and he noted the, this great, great aridity in the, in the hinterland of the Cape Colony. And he published a book uh, on the, uh, on the cause of this aridity. And he was already talking in that book about exactly the issues we talk about today. He was talking about, uh, about excessive burning of the land. He was talking about smash and burn agriculture. He was talking mm. about the uh, inability to retain flow and the variability of stream flow, etc. So there's nothing new. There's nothing, you know, you could read that book today and it's just as if he's spoken a couple of days ago. But then it, it took a it took a decade. Uh, 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 that particular idea that he started uh, planting with the seed that he planted uh, uh, found a very fruitful place to grow uh, in, the, in the mind of a young road engineer called Thomas Bain. Mm. And, to- and Thomas Bain, being a road engineer, was a very good map uh, map drawer, and he understood elevation and topography because that's what roads and, and bridges are all about. And um, he was busy doing a surveying work up in the Northern Cape around Uppington, around Kaimus area. And he started drawing maps, and he, he drew by hand uh, what uh, dams would uh, look like. And, in fact, he, he observed a very, very prosperous uh, uh, missionary station uh, in w- where present-day Kaimus is that had diverted water from the river. And he proposed, and he actually got, got this germ of an idea in his head, and he proposed transferring water from the Orange River all the way down to Port Elizabeth. Can you believe it or not? Okay. Mm-hmm. So literally, he proposed what eventually, a century later, became the Orange Fish Sundays Interbasin Transfer Scheme. So he was a century ahead of his time. But the important thing is that it took a hundred years for that idea to take to become a reality. And of course, a century later, 1960-61, when uh, when when this whole uh, uh, thing came to the fore after the Sharpeville massacre, we just celebrated that the last few days. Uh, when that happened, a uh, loss of conf- investor confidence in South Africa, well, the, 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 the uh, government established a commission of inquiry into water matters, and that said that water is our most strategic national resource. We therefore need to elevate it to the highest level of priority. And the first task that they looked at was Thomas Bain's plan 100 years ago mm. to bring water from the, uh, the, from, from the Orange. They built the then HF of Wood Dam and built this great big tunnel, 18, 90-kilometer-long tunnel through the mountain to take water into the Fish and Sundays River. And from that, we got the motor, the, the, the motor car industry uh, that suddenly started to thrive. Uh, you know, it's only been around since the 1970s in that part of the world. So there's, a, there's an example of an economic success story. And, of course, the same has happened with the city of Johannesburg, and I can go into details of that, mm. uh, but, but it's the same story, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, where, at what point did, did insuff, really insufficient attention being uh, uh, be paid to to the, to water and how it should be best uh, distributed? Did it just 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 sort of over time from the Nats into the time of of ANC uh, rule? Sort of get taken less seriously or not taken account of at all. What what accounts for this 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 sort of complete what I was almost lackadaisical attitude? 
um, to to water yeah. provision. Yeah, I, I get that question asked a lot, and, and I'll answer it uh, as factually as I'm able to. So, so the Commission of Inquiry into Water Matters that was uh, established in the 1960s uh, created uh, what I refer to as the South African Hydraulic Mission. And it's not different to the Israel, Israeli hydraulic mission where you had a centralized planning and a centralized concept that water will be moved around the country to serve the economy in the most logical way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the Commission of Inquiry into Water Matters created an, a number of things. And one thing it did was it created a tax on, 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 on the uh, sale of bulk water. And that taxation was used to, uh, d- to develop the science, engineering and technology in order to constantly push the frontier of knowledge. To the extent mm-hmm. that uh, the Water Research Commission was then created on those taxes, and uh, the, the Water Research Commission rapidly became a world authority in the interbasin transfers of water. And in fact, coming out of the Water Research Commission, the CSIR in the 1970s and 80s, was the very, very first water treatment plant uh, 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 taking sewage and making it potable for the city mm-hmm. of Vintuk. So, uh, so all of that, all of that technology came out of that commission of inquiry into water matters. And, uh, the whole idea of interbasin transfers, the Lesotho Highlands water scheme, all of that mm-hmm. stuff comes out of the, out of that, out of that big vision. Mm-hmm. Then when we became a democracy in 1994, uh, we got a new constitution and, and, and suddenly everything now had to change. And now we got an ideological uh, component into our decision-making framework. All your technocrats were generally uh, purged out of the system over time. Uh, we no longer uh, uh, remained a, um, a technically competent uh, uh, set of, you know, of structures of, you know, of councils, science councils, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, you know, the age of excellence gave way to the to the to the era of uh, of patronage. And that was a serious problem because one of the first victims of that whole process was the Commission of Inquiry into Water Matters, which was discarded uh, willingly uh, as being tainted by apartheid. And so, unfortunately, the vision of the the Commission of Inquiry was never, ever replaced by any ideological vision. And I will give you an example. I'll give you an example. The, The National Water Act of 1998 was the first piece of significant legislation passed in the democratic South Africa. So the first law was, in fact, the constitution passed after Cadessa. And the very, very next law was, that, was, that was updated was the National Water Act, when Kara Asmal was the, uh, was the minister. And at that point in time, I worked fairly closely with Kara Asmal. And that National Water Act was extremely progressive in the way that it, uh, it, it planned for the future. But what people don't realize is that in that one act, water was nationalized. So water was taken away from private ownership because of the land question. Uh, all the farms had had rights to water uh, by virtue of historic precedent. And, and in one foul swoop, uh, one stroke of the pen, water was nationalized and was then placed in the hands of a government that went under, uh, uh, went through a phase of radical transformation where where all the old structures of governance and all of the old institutions were undone piece piece by piece, but never really reassembled again in a proper orderly fashion. So so I'll I'll give an example. Uh, uh, up until the National Water Act, if you were an investor, just say you wanted to invest into a mine in South Africa, invest billions and billions of rands into into a mine in South Africa, you would have a water right, and that water right would you know would would serve you for the duration of your investment. Suddenly now, 
you had to you had to apply for water again because the state now owned water, and you had to apply for water, which meant that uh, the state had to have a, a personnel uh, uh, available to process hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of applications almost in the click of a finger. How could they how could they process these applications when the very science underpinning the allocation of water? Was still an emerging science, and there was there was incomplete knowledge if you took away the uh, the historic allocation of water rights. So so suddenly that one act alone almost imploded the entire system. And I would argue, I think convincingly, that we've never actually recovered from that. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give one I'll give one example. There was uh, at one point in time, South Africa was the darling of the world, and uh, people wanted to invest into South Africa as a success story. And there was one particular uh, global company, a big multinational corporation, that wanted to uh, put what would have been the largest foreign direct investment into South Africa. And they suddenly slammed head on into this water rights issue. They couldn't get a right for a particular plant that they wanted to invest into, and, and they backed off. And that, 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 for me, I got involved in the consulting work around that process. I was deeply involved in that eventually. But, but that taught me the very valuable lesson that the nationalization of water and the removable, uh, the removal of the justiciable right to water at the mm. same time that we've created this huge administrative requirement, uh, without the necessary, uh, uh, as a skilled people sitting in offices, making the decisions rather than just shuffling a piece of paper from one person to another, but actually making a meaningful decision on that. And that I think is, is I would I would almost argue that that is the sort of ground zero of our of, of our of our point of demise. From that moment onwards, water just generally slowly started unraveling. So it's essentially it's it's another dreadful incident uh, of um, rigid ideology over pragmatism and shall we say even human rights. Well, you see, water as a human right is is a is a very important global topic, but once you mm. start talking about water as a human right. Uh, you start going down a rabbit hole that is that is very complicated. And, and, and in fact, I would go so far as to say that uh, I'm going to make a statement now, which which might be might be uh, sound a bit extreme. But I think what has happened in South Africa is because of our of of the of the of the fervor of our transition to democracy, and because of the of the desire to to rid ourselves of everything to do with apartheid. What has happened now? Almost all of our entire legal framework has separated rights from responsibilities. Mm, mm. So you've got a, you've, you've got a, you've got a profound separation of, of the issue of right and the issue of responsibility. So for mm. example, the historically disadvantaged component of South Africa suddenly entrenched all of the rights that they've negotiated through trade unions, et cetera, et cetera. Very important rights. And I'm not trivializing those rights. Mm, mm. All of those rights, suddenly they now became enshrined in law, but, but without responsibilities. Mm. So, so you can be retrenched from your job and you can, you can enjoy salary for months and months and, you know, and you, because the due process must be followed. So mm-hmm. there's no longer a performance, a performance requirement for the, for the delivery of a service. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, on the other hand, your investors or your historically advantaged people, they have got all the responsibilities, but very few rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, so it's, 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 it's the fact that we divorced rights from responsibilities that started 
making South Africa uninvestable as an economy mm-hmm. from that moment. And it then started driving this whole thing uh, uh, in a, uh, of, 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 uh, of uh, patronage distribution. The politics of patronage became more deeply entrenched. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the loss of the initial loss of skills wasn't felt because you know, the systems were so robust and so well engineered. But over time, over two decades of time, all of those systems are slowly just running to the ground. And, and ultimately, there's been a diversion of, of, of budgets away from, from, from investment into the water sector. Uh, and, and all of that money has now gone into salaries and perks and benefits and, and, and other things, you know, other, mm-hmm. other, than, other than upgrading our water, our water infrastructure. And the same, exactly the same has happened in the energy sector. So, so the Eskom mm-hmm. story and the water story are simply flip sides of the exact same coin. Mm-hmm. Um, before we go in a few minutes to our next break, Anthony, I wanted to just ask you for comments on the fact that you, you're starting to see communities um, across the racial divide in, in, I suppose, let's call them towns or smaller towns, taking actually getting support from the courts to take over water and sewerage facilities, which have been which which just don't virtually don't exist anymore. We've been running to the ground. Sewerage is literally running above ground. Um, is there a future for this, or is it, or is it just a, a sort of sort of desperate quick fix for 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 in the interim? Yes, uh, that's uh, I think a very important development. Um, I've been involved as an expert uh, witness or an advisor to some of these legal processes. And I'm very proud to say that I was uh, I was directly involved in the Harry Smith case. Mm-hmm. And Harry Smith, of course, is one of the cases now where the court has granted uh, the local residents association uh, an association called HIT HIT, um, and they and and, and HIT is now responsible for taking over the infrastructure. And I think uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm very encouraged by this because it tells me that while we are living in a in a in a, in a failing state. At the moment, uh, and I, we can talk about the failing state later if you want to, but, 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 uh, uh, I believe we're living in a failing state. One mm. of the things that is not failing us is the judiciary. So mm. the judiciary is now enabling us to, uh, to start making corrective measures. And, you know, just for, 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 for a heads up purpose, I define a failing state as the, as that moment in time when, uh, when, when a, a government authority or a government agency, uh, is unable to self-correct. Mm-hmm. So it's the inability to recognize a correction is needed. And so, so the courts are now almost like that hard reset needed to, to, uh, in the absence of self-correction. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Anthony, are you still with me? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, one of the things that concerns me, um, I think there's a great... Uh, in, there's great importance in placing the maintenance of, of these services uh, into essentially private community hands because th- those doing it and those those receiving the better result have, have a very direct interest in the way that it is managed, un- unlike the the complete gap between ANC management of, of these resources and, and the people who are supposed to benefit. Is there likely, to, however, to be a problem of su- sustainability in that whether these uh, community groupings can sustain the provision and still pay their rates, or should they be allowed to deduct from the rates for the provision of the water? What, in your sense, is the best way to 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 run this this uh, sort of community-based? 
proce- program successfully? Yes, okay, look, uh, it's, uh, we're dealing with an enormously complex area. of uh, it's, it's almost it's an emerging complex area. So, so let's just unpack it a little bit so we can understand what the, what the elements of complexity are that we're dealing with. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you don't understand that complexity, then, then the you know, simplistic answer really is not necessarily the most appropriate answer. So, so, so the first thing we need to understand is that water has been nationalized. This is a fact. Therefore, government ultimately controls the allocation of it. This is a fact. So if you're a private person and you want to go and spend a billion rand on upgrading a plant somewhere, you're giving that money away because someone else is going to control it. And that makes water sector uninvestable in South Africa. This is the problem. The other thing now is because water is predominantly a human rights issue, water has does not have an economic value. And in almost all cases, water is sold on at a very, at a relatively low cost that nowhere near represents its actual economic value. So this is, this is another mitigating factor. Now let's go a little bit deeper into the conversation and let's look at the numbers. We need just a little short of one trillion South African rand, 800 billion rand is what's needed plus minus. Let's round it off to one trillion rand because we're so glib with these, with these numbers. Uh, this is the amount of money needed just to restore the services that we've lost. So the question now is where is that money going to come from in the current context of a, of a, of a failing economy uh, that's been exacerbated by COVID-19, uh, an outflow of foreign direct investment from the country, uh, 40% something or other unemployment in the country, uh, where are we going to create the revenues, the tax revenues needed to sustain this? And I think the answer is that we're probably not going to get the tax revenues for that. Therefore, I believe this opens up a window of opportunity now to suddenly renegotiate the rules of the game, if you like. And I'm deeply involved in that. Uh, uh, we've created a thing called the SA Business Water Chamber. And if you want to speak to anyone about this, I would uh, recommend that you speak to a gentleman by the name of Benoit Leroy. Uh, he's the CEO of the Water Chamber, and he can speak very eloquently about what we're trying to do with the Chamber. But essentially what we're trying to do at the Chamber is is we are trying to firstly restore the technical competence that has been completely decimated by mm-hmm. by by the whole procurement process. Um, most of your service providers uh, are either no longer exist or no longer in business or they're so decimated that they may be functioning at 10% of their, of their capacity. So we have to restore that capacity because that's a national asset. That's the first thing we must do. But the second thing that we have to do is we have to now work with the, with the Treasury, SA Treasury, and the Reserve Bank, and with all the other big players in government to create a new business model where we can, where, where we can align this with policy, now public-private, mm-hmm. uh, uh, PPP kind of investment. And in this regard, we're working uh, uh, very, very closely uh, with Ruf Mayer and, and, and his initiative, uh, uh, the um, – uh, the, the PPGR, the Public-Private Growth Initiative, where we, we're trying to align our water initiative with the Public-Private Growth Initiative. It's not an easy alignment, but we, we're working on it actively at the moment. Mm-hmm. Now, now, in that process, we're working with some very smart investment bankers, very smart, you know, I mean, so I would say the cream of the crop in South Africa, mm-hmm. the best legal brains and investment brains that we have available. And we've created a, 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 a thing known as a special purpose vehicle. And that special purpose vehicle can be suited to dropping into a, a, a specific municipality or a specific place where it's needed. 
And what the special purpose vehicle does is it guarantees that the capital that's put into that particular project is ring-fenced and stays in that project, mm-hmm. but it also builds skills and accountability over time. So, so, so we call this the cookie cutter approach because we've got a little cookie cutter solution and we know that not all, not all problems are amenable to a cookie cutter solution, but at least it's a, it's a point of departure. So, so we already have a high level of buy-in from treasury. We have a high mm-hmm. level of buy-in from the presidency for this. The question now is, can we get that buy-in right through the system? Because this is, of course, is where your corruption happens. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I note, for example, now that, that there is a, a new plan afoot to create, to create a new government agency. Uh, 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 the, it's being spun as a, as a dedicated government agency. And in fact, I've written an op-ed for the University uh, uh, of, of Free State that is being published today. I don't know where, but it's, mm-hmm. it's going out somewhere. And that op-ed actually deals with this, with this issue of this new um, uh, a centralized procurement agency, if you like. Uh, within government. And as soon, as soon as I hear about that, I get mm. worried because this is about bypassing the normal checks and balances in your tender process. And it's the tender process that has destroyed our technical capacity in the country because uh, all people, all, all professional service providers have been given a very, very stark op- uh, 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 option. Either, either uh, uh, play the game and give us kickbacks and we give you the contract or if you don't play the game, you're not going to get the contract. You're going to go to business. So, so it's a very, very stark, polarized world that we're living in now. With the few mm-hmm. service providers that are left are terrified now of, you know, of investigations into past contracts, etc. Mm-hmm. No one wants mm-hmm. any rock to be un- overturned. But we have to, we have to restore the integrity of our service, our technical service providers. So that's where we are today. You know? So, so now, uh, uh, ultimately, we're going to have to work with government. We're going to have to get government buy-in, and therefore we get to the very, very simple notion of do we have the rule of law in South Africa, yes or no? It's as simple as that. If we have the rule of law, then we can now start weeding out the corrupt individuals. Then we can drop in our cookie-cutter solution, our PPPs. Then we can start attracting substantial amounts of capital back into the country because mm-hmm. there's no shortage of capital and there's no shortage of technology. There's only a shortage of bankable projects. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. There are no backable projects, but there's abundance of capital and technology. Tony, this has been absolutely fascinating because I, I, I think much of what you've said would n- really not have been known by most of us, and we just have the sense of the sort of general immediate crisis surrounding our particular municipalities. And uh, there is much that we could pursue on this, and if I may, I'd, I'd like to invite you back at a later stage to go through this, and I'll follow up on some of the uh, articles and people that you have made. Thank you very much for, for, for coming and joining us today. It's very much appreciated. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much.